Welcome to The Way Podcast on FM 91.7 WHUS stores at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill Trofeski, and for more, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com. Now, my guest today is Toby Muse, a journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker. His work has appeared in the New York Times, CNN, BBC, The Guardian, among others. Uh, first off, how are you doing today, Toby? Good, good, good. Thank you for the interview. I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation, but I'm doing well. Sounds good. Thank you for coming out. And now you are the author of the book Kilo. What is that about? That's correct. So I lived in Colombia for around 17 years, and I ended up spending years and years reporting on the cocaine industry. And I wanted to write a book about that industry. I wanted to show the rest of the world the things that we all know about in Colombia. So I decided I would follow one kilo of cocaine from its productions in the mountains, in the jungles, as it passes through the hands of this whole kind of ecosystem, the whole underworld, on its way to the biggest consumers of the drug, which is the United States and Europe, and kind of every link of that chain to kind of show the people who live and die in cocaine. But again, I wanted to show what people didn't know about that underworld. I wasn't interested in writing another book that Pablo Escobar was born in 1949. No, I wanted to show you the witches that cast spells in order to get the cocaine out of the country. I wanted you to meet the drug lord's girlfriend. You know, these are people. I wanted you to get to know the person who picks the coca leaves. And it's a very human story about all of these individual people. One of the things I was going to bring up that you just mentioned were the witches. What, what can you tell me about those? Well, witchcraft is very big in South America. And I think it's really interesting, this kind of this melting pot of old religions. So you've got Obviously, everyone knows that Catholicism is big in uh, Latin America, but then you've got evangelical Christianity. And in the middle of this, you've got indigenous uh, rituals, indigenous beliefs. You've also got a form of, they call it Santeria, which is a kind of the beliefs that were brought over by uh, when the slaves were brought over from Africa hundreds of years ago. They retained their own beliefs and traditions. And in certain parts of the country, kind of all of that comes together, clashes together. So I interviewed a witch, and uh, this was a man who uh, cast spells uh, for his clients in the underworld. This drug lord I interviewed, I got to know quite well, had actually a number of different witches. You know, I guess he wanted to make sure um, he wanted to play the odds on this. But they'll, they'll cast spells. For instance, one spell they do is uh, which uses um, cat's bones which is the spell of invisibility. Now, it's not real invisibility, but what they'll do is they'll take a cat's bone, they'll put that in with the shipment of cocaine. And the idea is that the customs or the kind of the police officer who's walking through the warehouse just won't look at that shipment. They won't look at that package. They won't look at that container. That's the belief of these people. But I think it's also a sign of when you're living in a world of utter chaos, which is what cocaine is, uh, you, you look for any sort of stability. You look for anything to believe in. And, you know, it's this very nihilistic world where, where there's nothing really is solid. There's nothing really to believe in. So they end up believing in anything. What's some of the chaos you've seen? I'm sure there's plenty, but... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, it's just inherently chaotic because it's this entire world where there's billions and billions of dollars at stake. 
but it's all carried out in the shadows. And that was another kind of, these were the interesting themes I wanted to get to. I, you know, many times now we've had the depictions of the sicarios, the, um, the killers for hire. I, I didn't need to add to that by just introducing the world to another one of those, but I did want to explain the vital role these men, normally men, but there are women who also kill for, um, kill for money, these hired killers, the, the role that they play in this underworld. They install, they instill order. When two businessmen have a dispute in the legal world, they can go to court. If you're in the world of cocaine, obviously that option is not available for you. That's when people end up hiring these contract killers. And the contract killers themselves have evolved into this very interesting thing, which is called an office. Every major Colombian city has an office. It used to be called a collection office. This is a legacy of Pablo Escobar. Uh, but the office is an, an assassination outfit. So if you want your rival, if you have a love rival, you can go and hire yourself a contract killer. And it's very, very common. You see this horrendously high uh, homicide rate in countries like Colombia, and a startling number of those killings are carried out by contract killers, killers for hire. Is that like, I listened to your guest on the Underworld podcast, and in that episode, good episode, by the way, in that episode, I heard uh, one of your co-workers set up a meeting with some high-end members in a gay bar, actually. <laughs> so was it something like that? Yeah, I mean, those actually were those were actually drug traffickers. And it was a friend of mine, this guy I've known for years, who's on the margins of that world, of the underworld. And he had, because these it was a time when the cartels were, the drug, um, it was just an, there was, there was fears of a war in the city of Medellin. So they were very careful about where they would go. And this friend of mine kind of arranged them to actually set up, we met them in the middle of a gay motel. A motel is kind of, I, I, we don't really have these in America or England, but because of a legacy of people aren't rich enough to have their own apartments in uh, Latin America, it's very common, the motel, a place where you'll go and you'll rent a room for an hour or two. It's just a pure like prostitution kind of ring? No, 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 actually it's pure lovers. It's not always prostitution, it's lovers. So the idea is that there's an 18, two 18 year olds, you know, two lovers who are 18 year old. The houses, the apartments are often not very big. You may share, even up until 18, you may share a room. So just to have, you know, sex that isn't in kind of in the back of a car or something, they often won't have a car. It's just a moment for these young lovers or to find some moment to be alone. So again, you rent the room, and they're actually these elaborate motels that all re revolve around sex. Everybody who goes into a motel is going to have sex. Sometimes it's with a prostitute, but mainly it's uh, for lovers, and they kind of have these themes. Uh, so anyway, this was a gay motel in the middle of Medellin, in the downtown, it was like midday. And so, you know, these dudes were like going there to, for their midday hookups, and there we were interviewing these drug traffickers. But um, a contract killer in the book I interview, uh, who goes by the name of Cachote, you know, he had been in it for years, and it's very typical, uh, it's a very typical trajectory. He's in his teenage years. These older men who work for these offices, uh, these, you know, they're on the lookout for talent. You, you need someone who has a hard heart, who can think quickly, who has, a, who has a mean streak in them. And they're always on the lookout for those people to be another assassin for hire. You know, they'll make a commission on every assassination for hire. And 
there's even a term in Colombia now for the, assass for the assassins, for these hired killers who are sent on one-way missions, i.e. they're sent to kill like very high-level politicians and they don't know it. So they're called Suizos, which is actually Swiss in English, but it's a, a, it's a shortening of the word for suicide. But the young men don't know that. They're just told, oh, this is another, another job for you. And if by some miracle the assassin actually survives the assassination, killing the high-ranking politician, when they go to meet up with their handler to get their money, very common to see the assassin is shot and killed and left by the, end, by the side of the road. And there you've kind of tied up a loose end about your participation having overseen the assassin. So they really draw on the, the, the kind of misery of these slums that you see in, in Colombia, but also across a lot of Latin America. But there's a whole culture around these... Um, around these assassins and I start that sequence with him praying to the virgin of the assassin. They have their own shrine which they've kind of, it's a public shrine with the Virgin Mary but they've adopted it because Pablo Escobar had built this and paid for this shrine in Medellin, it's by the roadside. And you'll go there and anytime you can see a young man who just clearly has the look of trouble. And you know, he may be an assassin going there to get his bullets blessed, going there to to pray to the Virgin Mary for success in his upcoming mission to kill someone for money. I mean, it's madness. And that's the insanity I wanted to show the world. That part that I didn't think the rest of the world really knew about, these kind of, these uncovered chapters of the underworld. Yeah, I had no idea about that, but don't they realize it's a suicide mission? Like, don't they see they all die or when they come back, they die? Don't they catch on at all? Well, I mean, this, yeah, the suicide missions are very rare. And, you know, you're talking about, so um, that's when there's been a few cases, I'm trying to think of one, there was a number of these cases in uh, when Colombia's violence was just through the roof. You're looking at the late 80s, the, um, uh, the late 80s and the, early, and the 90s. I mean, I think there was one year where three presidential candidates were killed in one year, all by, all by, um, or by hired assassins. And one of those cases, I'm trying to remember which one, was clearly a, uh, a suicide mission. But you're taking a kid from a slum who's got very bad education, maybe fell out of, um, he was stopped going to school when he was 10 in order to help out at home. You know, he doesn't know. I mean, it, 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 honestly, there's a real misery, there's a real abandonment in some of those slums. So you tell the kid, you show him a photo of someone and say, hey, go kill this man. We're going to give you the gun. He may even know, he may not even know it's a presidential candidate. He doesn't watch the news. So he doesn't know. But no, the idea is they never know. Damn. That kind of reminds me, what you mentioned the podcast before too, was these kids, you said they're born poor, like really poor, like it's the most unequal country in the world. And that if you're born poor in that area, there's absolutely next to no chance you'll be able to get out of it unless you take part in these missions or, yeah, you become a part of these cartels. Yeah, I mean, Colombia is a phenomenally unequal country. I mean, shockingly, it, it really is. It's, it's jaw-dropping how unequal that country is, where you have this tiny selection of families that have so much concentration of power and wealth. And it, it's even compared to other South American countries, I think there's this... You know, if you go to a place like Argentina, there are there is concentration of wealth, but they have this kind of this middle class that's getting squeezed often. But it's it's this middle class that has kind of power and has a way of kind of sometimes putting the brakes on the real power grabs by the oligarchs. 
in Colombia, I mean, they claim to have this middle class, but it's it's it, it, on paper they say it's this expanding middle class, and I guess it is. But there's just so much poverty there where people just struggle to get by, and this coronavirus has hit the country so hard. I mean, we're talking people who have gone down from, you know, a sizable part of that country has gone down from eating three times a day to uh, two times a day. There's a part in the north uh, eastern part of the country. There's an indigenous uh, zone with the indigenous there. The tribe is called the Wayu, um, one of the largest indigenous communities in Colombia. They live in the desert there, and they've had thousands of children die of malnutrition in recent years. There's that level of poverty in much of this, and it's highly, highly stratified. And that's where this kind of phrase comes out, which I'm sure is oversimplifying it to a certain extent. But if you are born, the likelihood is you will die poor. Again, you know, if you if you grow up in the countryside and you stop going to school when you're 12 because you need to help out your mother and your father at the farm, I mean, you know, you're just massively reducing your your chances of really elevating yourself. And it's a tragedy because Colombians are so smart. You go through that uh, countryside and you meet these men and women who will tell you, oh yeah, no, I stopped going to school at nine. And you think, if these people had had a chance to really finish their schooling, the potential for them to have gone to university is just, you know, it's, it's very sad at the end, but yeah, it's this very stratified country, and this kind again, it's we're tending into a kind of oversimplified uh, oversimplification. But sometimes it feels feudal. That country, when you get out into the countryside, the local rich people will have a huge farm, and the rest of the town will just kind of they're just kind of their existence, their 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 health, their employment, their incomes will kind of revolve around the local rich man. It's it, it's a very very it's a country that needs a lot to change, tr profound radical transformation, and that's why you still have this is not to justify their existence, but this is why you've had this succession of revolutionary groups, revolutionary Marxist groups, because the inequality is so shocking. Where's their government in this? Do they fund schools at all, or do anything? I, I, mean, I was out with the coca farmers. This is where the cocaine is, the first step of coca. So coca is the crop that is these bushes, and you kind of you take the leaves, you you harvest it, and then that you'll turn into something called coca paste. That's the first stop on your um, on your journey to creating pure cocaine. And I was out there with them, and um, so it's this kind of these are farmers, and never, no one really thinks these people are criminals. It's not like when marijuana was illegal in different parts of the country and someone was growing marijuana, the culture, whatever you thought, would basically say, okay, that person's a criminal, right or wrong, we acknowledge that person's a criminal. That's not the way it's really seen in Colombia. If you're growing coca, the poverty of the countryside is known by everybody. And so I was out there with them and they were telling me that they had just finished building the school. Now, this is such a it's so lawless out there, you know, you hardly ever see, you never see the police. You occasionally will see soldiers on military patrol coming through like they're going through Baghdad in 2008 on the lookout for anything. And they were telling me about the school and they said that it had taken them three years to raise funds from the community. They had set up a little toll on this dirt track. Um, it taken them three years to pay for that school. And who was paying the toll? 
people who were who were moving coca. So in the end, cocaine ended up building that school. And as you say, the question is, where's the government in this? Well, historically, Colombia is such a treacherous country with this vast jungles in passable mountain ranges. It's the Andean mountains. And so the central government in Bogota has never, ever been able to control that country effectively. So what you have is you have in Bogota, the central government, as soon as you get out into outside of that, it breaks down into little fiefdoms. And if you meet someone smart, like the local, go to a small village, speak to uh, the teachers, look for an old man, look for an old woman who spent 40 years teaching and ask them, hey, who are the families that control this? They'll name them instantly. If you go to a suburb of Detroit and say, hey, tell me the families who own this part of the country, they wouldn't no, to give you the same in London. But in Colombia, immediately they'll say, oh, well, it's this family, it's this family, it's this family. And these families have been controlling the country for centuries. You know, they occasionally get into feuds amongst themselves. But again, it's this concentration of wealth and political power in the country that needs to change. I mean, urgently. I didn't write a book to kind of be prescriptive. But I mean, that needs to change for Colombia to kind of, you know, for, for the people in that country, the poor, to have some sort of dignity. Saying like they know the names, is that kind of like how when alcohol was illegal, everybody kind of knew like the mobster in their neighborhood, the gang members, the mafia? Well, that's a bit different. I mean, it is true, though. I mean, if you go to any part of the country, again, sad that people will know the illegal organizations in control. And this has actually been something quite interesting because there was the largest the longest, sorry, the longest running insurgency on the planet had been uh, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. In 2016, they pacted this peace process with the government. But what had happened was, over the years, the coca, the, co the territory that grew coca and produced cocaine had increasingly come under the FARC's control. Part of this peace deal was, and it was implicit in this, explicit as well, the FARC were saying, look, we have all of this territory. We're going to lower our guns. We've been in control so far, but once we lower our guns, once we disarm, the government needs to arrive to every single corner of Colombia, especially these corners with the coca, because these are lawless. Imagine like America, imagine like Deadwood, the gold rush, imagine that, but except with men with AK-47s. Now, purely lawless. You need to get here. We need the police to impose a minimum law and order. And that was the deal. That was on paper what was supposed to happen. The government didn't do it. So the FARC laid down their weapons, all of this territory that was rife with infrastructure to produce cocaine, all of the coca crops, was just sitting there waiting for a militia to turn up. So you saw the explosion of newly formed armed militias that took over these parts of the country. But now no one knows who to go to. Under the FARC, if a family was having trouble, say, with uh, a local commander, they would know who they could go speak to and say, hey, this commander is causing problems. This commander's coming in and, you know, we, we're worried about this commander with our daughters. They, they could do that. They could find someone within the FARC they could speak to. Now they have no idea. These new militias turn up. These new militias are almost entirely motivated by the drugs industry. They don't really care about any sort of relationship with the local people. They try to intimidate them. 
And so one woman in a very violent part of the country that has more coca than any part on the world, a place called Tumaco, she said, this peace has been very bloody for us. The peace has been worse for us than the war. Um, and so that's the situation a lot of these people live in. Why would they lay down their weapons? Um, well, I mean, be better I, off just keeping their territory, kind of. Well, uh, <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, the FARC had so the FARC had the FARC had really taken a number of heavy, heavy, heavy blows until two thousand and eight. I don't think the FARC had ever lost a senior commander in battle. And then 2008, the US had given billions and billions and billions to Colombia. They'd given this fleet of Black Hawks. They taught the Colombian police and soldiers how to use them. And it really took a few years, like six, seven years, for the Colombians to really feel in control. And then they just unleashed this on the FARC, and the FARC would just battered by it. I mean, they were just, they just weren't ready. And it was just increasingly, they were in the jungles, they had no chance of any sort of um, revolution. And they were just getting battered by this. And they sort of saw this way for a new Colombia that they could achieve through this peace process. And the peace process itself was not a simple disarmament. It was supposed to be a blueprint for a new Colombia. It was supposed to see massive investment in the Colombian countryside. It was supposed to see, um, again, addressing these problems I've already mentioned, health, uh, education for the countryside. It was supposed to work with the coca farmers in order to help them find new ways of uh, new incomes, You know, whether it be planting pineapples, whatever. It was also supposed to build the necessary infrastructure, the roads, the bridges that these farmers need in order to take their legal crops to market because i mean if you don't have a bridge to cross the stream and you've got a ton of pineapples what are you supposed to do and that's another reason why these people end up producing coca which in this turn they have these farmers will have their own laboratories they'll condense a basically a ton of coca leaves and it's a three or four day process they'll condense that down to a single kilo of powder uh, it's kind of this blob and you can just, it's not powder, it's this kind of, it's this block. And you can just throw that in a backpack. And that's going to, you know, compare that with trying to ship a ton of pineapples. And, you know, this is another one of the reasons why coca uh, is so attractive. Not only that, I think um, I read one of your older, older articles on uh, The Guardian some years ago. I think it was like 2005. Isn't cocaine, like, it's obviously a big economy. It's obviously a big industry, a lot of money to be made there. So aren't these farmers making a bunch of money growing this coca? No. Actually, that's the thing that just keeps on coming through uh, this thing. And, and there's a number of points to hit there. It was really interesting this time to really spend a lot of time out with the coca farmers. I was doing my final research. I really spent about three weeks with them, four weeks. Um, and this was in 2018. And I had never seen them so tired of the cocaine industry. And they all wanted out because one of the major reasons is, and this is interesting that you bring that article up, 2005, they were roughly receiving about 1.4 million Colombian pesos. Let's just call it $300. It's, let's just call that $300. In 2005, that was huge amounts of money. 
But because they were in these coca towns, which are these kind of local hubs, these tiny little lawless towns where people would go in and they would buy from the farmers their coca paste. But it was a kind of open market. And so the cocaine intermediaries between the cocaine farmers and the cartels, you know, had a bit of flexibility to pay a bit more, pay a bit less. As the... As the cocaine industry, the militia started taking control. A single militia would take control of a town and they would say to the farmers, now you have to sell to us. So there was no longer this kind of open market. And so they stabilized a fixed price. And that fixed price is about 1.4 million Colombian pesos. Again, $300. But the point is it hasn't risen in 15 years. Everything else, the price for everything else has risen. These farmers, so what you're seeing is that that article for the guardian they were i mean you know this is the life and again i wanted to show this life it is like the deadwood that hbo series it is that wild west these farmers would come in on a saturday morning perhaps a friday night they would sell it 300 dollars and 2005 that's good money they would buy a bottle of whiskey they would sit there with their friends. Sometimes they would sit at the same table for 48 hours drinking. They would sleep on the table. They would wake up in the morning, start drinking again, fall asleep. And that's all they would stumble into the brothels. The town I went to in that article is Llorente. There must have been 5,000 people. There must have been, there were hundreds, hundreds at least prostitutes. There were various brothels in this tiny little town. Um, and they would go to the brothel, they would go with two prostitutes, then they would go home with the money, they would still have money. Now, they just, they're not earning, that, that. now they can afford a few beers, it's still the tradition, they'll go to the brothel, that's part of the lifestyle, but they're not, they don't have the money in their pocket like they used to. And that's why they're very upset. Now, now on top of that, I, oh, and, and in real terms, by the way, I think it's important to note that they receive $300, but, um, but actually what they're taking home, when you take out the costs, that could be like $100 they're left with. And that's after two and a half months. That's how often you can harvest coca in Colombia because Colombia is in the tropics. It doesn't have these seasons. So, and the final thing, once you make a handshake with cocaine, once you agree to get involved in this industry, and as soon as you start planting coca, you are making that deal with the devil, all of the downside of that comes in. Yes, it's the, it's the crop you know you can always sell. But once coca takes hold of a town, there's always this golden era for the town, maybe a year, maybe two years. Everybody's kind of making a little money. This was 15 years ago. Then the militias come in. And now it's like that old, old thing about being an outlaw. Well, you know, once you become an outlaw, you can't count on the law to help you out. So if you have any sort of legal problem, if these militias turn up to your farm and start threatening you, you can't go to the police because you're involved in the cocaine industry. And they just kind of look at all of these downsides, the high, it's a social disintegration occurs to these towns when cocaine takes over. So these are dignified farmers. Sometimes they've been growing coffee. Sometimes they've been cattle. When coca comes in, it destroys the fabric. It, it pits neighbor against neighbor. It kind of brings on a new mentality of, you know, don't bother saving, just tomorrow never comes. It, you know, you'll see these farmers will fall in love with the prostitutes, they'll run off with them. The prostitutes bring STDs into these very conservative, cut-off um, towns, so the farmer will give an STD to his wife. 
And then, as I say, there's always in the background this violence. The dead bodies start mounting up. And, you know, there's a lot of downsides. And as I say, today, the money really isn't there. The problem is any other legal crop has all of those problems. If you live six hours away from the local small town that's the hub, how are you going to get that ton of pineapples there? It's going to cost you a fortune to get it there. So that's why coca continues to be attractive, but it's begrudging attraction. It's not the kind of money maker it used to be for the for the peasants. But that's what we call them in Colombia, the small farmers. The real money comes farther on the drug cartels. Um, that's those are the people who are making tremendous amounts of money. And I'm assuming they can't go back to what they did before the coca like back to wherever they were growing before or they'll be killed or something? I mean, they can and they can't. I mean, it's kind of interesting because what happens is uh, sometimes they are physically threatened. That is absolutely a case. And by the way, we're living in a golden age of cocaine now. There's more cocaine than ever before in history. And that's because of that peace deal. So what you had was you had these zones where the FARC used to control. And what we think happened, and this is what one coca farmer told me, the FARC told these farmers, you know what, why don't you plant a bit more coca so when the government comes with its crop substitution program to help you get out of coca, well, you know, if you've got a few more hectares than you used to have, well, you know, you can ask the government for more resources. What happened is the FARC kind of in some places we know that happened. I don't know how widespread that was across the country, but certainly in northern Antioquia where they told me that. But what happened is, so the FARC withdraw, they lay down their weapons. The new militia turns up and they say, here's the first order. Anyone who stops planting coca, we're going to kill. That's very clear. But there's other times when the whole mentality, how to say it, it's like when, when coca takes, when cocaine takes over one of these tiny towns, it really drives the prices up. So it's kind of that becomes pressure on you to plant coca as well. So if you go to like a law-abiding town, it's very quiet. Uh, you know, it's very quiet. It's very calm. They grow coffee there or something. It, it's very, you know, very decent. They call them sano, healthy towns. When you go to a cocaine town, there will be a place that kind of sells flat screen TVs because some people are earning a bit more money. Um, and it just, it drives all of the prices up in the town. So you kind of feel forced to plant coca yourself in order to keep up. All right, I got you. And well, actually, before we move on from that town that you mentioned earlier, what can you tell me about Adriana Suarez or Lucia Baker? Do you hey, remember Adriana? Those? They were, um, she was the prostitute you mentioned in their uh, sex, drink, and coca Boomtown Blues article with The Guardian. Adriana, I remember, but who was the other one? Uh, Lucia, and I think her last name was Baker. No, she's a baker. <laughs> my bad, my bad. Her name was Lucia. I, I was actually just thinking of, I can't remember I was thinking, what she said, but actually I was... Go ahead, I was, sorry. When I was reading that too, I was thinking, Baker's kind of a white name, but eh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You really had me there. So, okay, so Adriana Suarez, again, this is a very, very common... Um, very common uh, situation these women find themselves in is that prostitution is an openly accepted profession in Colombia. Um, in every town, there's the brothel. Uh, there's a brothel. I don't. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, not every village, tiny village, but every city has various brothels. And so these women are attracted. They hear that these coca farmers have money, 
So, you know, women from across the country will go down to these farms, uh, to these towns where the coca towns. In the book, I actually interview a woman. A lot of these prostitutes have been replaced by Venezuelan women because of the economic implosion in Venezuela. Much of the prostitution has been taken over by Venezuelan women looking to support their families, looking to make some money. They live in these Colombian towns for a year, save up their money, go home, and there they can kind of support themselves. But what's interesting is also the coca pickers as a job, the Colombians have been replaced by Venezuelans because the Colombians, the employers can kind of mistreat, not mistreat, but they can kind of push the Venezuelans harder because they know the Venezuelans are more desperate. They can, I don't know if they pay them less, but I know they push them harder. Is it like Mexicans coming across the border to America, sort of? But It, it, it is. I mean, there's... Yeah, I mean, there is. Yeah, it's a simple thing of just, yeah, I mean, you know, immigration can, is often liked by employers because they can pay less. Um, and it's not really a conflict between the Colombian, it shouldn't be a, Columbia, a conflict between the Colombian worker and the Venezuelan worker. They're basically united against the person who's trying to screw them over, which is the employer, who's trying to like go for this cheaper workforce and trying to drive wages down. Um, but yeah, so that you've seen that. So when you go to these brothels, and in the book, I go to one, because again, that's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show this part of the, this world. I try to write a book that is as thrilling, dangerous, sexy, glamorous, grimy as the cocaine trade itself. I thought for far too long, we've kind of had these books where people just reel off all of these statistics. I wanted to take the reader, this is what a brothel in a cocaine town feels like on a Friday night. And so I'm there and I'm drinking beers, there with a couple of friends, and almost all of the women seem to be Venezuelan. And 90% of the coca pickers are Venezuelan as well. We're in Colombian territory and they all come. The coca pickers are there to blow off steam. They've had a hard week. They've got some money in their pocket. They're going to spend it. And they're kind of like even a fit. And they're a figure of the Colombian countryside. The coca picker coming into town on the weekend is, you know, it's an affectionate figure, but he's going to cause some trouble. He's going to get drunk. He's going to spend way too much of that money on women and booze. But, you know, again, they're kind of, they're, it, it's, it, it's, not look, it's not looked down on. It's kind of a, people are kind of, they smile like, oh, young men going wild, if you see what I mean. So um, that's that. Now, I had actually remembered something that was really funny about that thing. Now you mentioned the baker. I can't remember what she said, but one thing that did remind me of, that I was standing behind a little girl who was trying to buy a, um, uh, buy a, 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 a loaf of bread or something, you know, they don't really eat loaves of bread, but they eat bread rolls or I can't remember what it would have been, but it would have been something like that. And she paid with the biggest bill possible. So imagine if you are standing in a quiet country town and there's a 10 year old girl in front of you at the gas station and she's buying a single bottle of Coca-Cola and she's trying to pay with a thousand dollar bill. That's what it was. And the woman at the bakery said, I, God, just everybody wants to pay with these 50,000 bills. At that time, that was the largest uh, Colombian bill denomination. Imagine the entire economy is just everyone trying to spend with these $1,000 bills. And it's just kind of crazy. No one had change. But that's the kind of the imbalance that coca and cocaine can do to these towns. Yes, this crazy inflation. Exactly. Yeah. And they just, you know, the cocaine guys come in, they've come from outside. They're not bringing 
small bills. No, they've got lots of transactions to make. So they're bringing in the equivalent of the biggest denomination. What is the biggest American denomination? I guess we've lost the $1,000 bill now, haven't we? I think we did. Yeah, if you find it's, it's probably 100. Yeah, I'd probably just say 100. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. What about, um, you met people like that. What about meeting the cartel members themselves? So this was a process, and I kind of had this friend, and um, we just kind of met by accident, and he is on the outskirts of that, not on the outskirts, but he's on the margins of that, but actually on the margins of a very important thing, which again is a part that the world really hasn't got to see this, is the nightclubs. This is tremendously exp uh, important for these drug traffickers. Um, because this is where they get to show off. This is where they get to hang out with their friends in the nightclubs with their model actress girlfriends. They get to do a big show off by buying bottles of champagne for everybody. This guy I met, he would, he ha had a lot of friends who are models and actresses, and he would be the kind of bridge between these drug lords, these drug traffickers. I should keep repeating that. And now just be the difference. A drug lord is like the top, top, top person. A drug trafficker is just basically anyone who's exporting cocaine abroad. And there is a big difference. Uh, every drug lord is obviously a drug trafficker. Not every drug trafficker is a drug lord. But he would introduce these drug traffickers to these models, these actresses, and he kind of made money there. It's not straight up prostitution. He's not a pimp. It's much more subtle than that. It's not this kind of thing of money left on the nightstand and him getting 10%. It doesn't work like that. It's kind of much more like, you know, it's, you know, the, a drug trafficker maybe with a model for a weekend and he'll buy her a car at the end of the weekend or he'll buy her some jewelry. There's no tariffs. There's nothing so, I mean, again, there's nothing so kind of, um, What's the word for it? There's nothing so uh, so banal as like deciding. Oh, this is the amount of money we will um, we will uh, we will exchange here. And then this guy I knew, he would receive money from the drug trafficker, and maybe you know maybe his friend, the woman, would kind of lend him some money as well. And that was so he got to know many many people within that world. And, and um, I started off doing interviews with different people. I would do an interview with a contract killer. And again, a contract killer can be the most disposable of people in the drug war. That is not difficult to get an interview with a contract killer because it could just be an 18-year-old who's just starting out and who will kill people for $50. And I would do these interviews and they would see that I was someone who could be trusted. No one would get arrested after my, after my interview, after my story came out. And so, you know, I kind of got more, met more and more people in that world. Yeah, these people at the bottom, is that what a Sicario is? So a Sicario is just literally a killer for hire. Okay. Okay. And so, again, with uh, meeting some of these members, one thing I found interesting was you said uh, they have rule number one, which is whoever introduces pays it. Mm. Exactly. So el que presenta paga. And that's, I think, really interesting. Again, there were a couple of themes I would see throughout this book. Everybody ends up regretting getting involved in cocaine. They all, cocaine is, again, this deal with the de devil. And it's this kind of thing that cocaine makes this promise. I will give you the chance to achieve all of your dreams. If you, and it's these men are constantly thinking about sex and money when they get involved in it. It's from the beginning, cocaine is fueled by dreams of lust and greed. 
And cocaine says, I will give you a chance. If you come and work in this business, I'll give you a chance to have a girlfriend who's an actress. I'll give you a chance to make just countless amounts of money. But the deal is you're going to die quickly. You may not get all of these dreams, but what's guaranteed is you're going to have a shortened life. And these people would say, okay, that's good. But then they all kind of get into cocaine and they realize there's no way out. This kind of door has slammed behind them. Um, so I think that was kind of uh, what I was trying to, I really want to convey. Sorry, I've just uh, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> what was the question? Oh, I uh, brought out rule one. Rule one. So that, and then the other theme I kept seeing was the way that these men and women try to install, instill order, again, in this inherently chaotic world. They have to they have to invent these new rules because they're just, they're doing it by themselves. There is no order in cocaine. So one of them is that rule. He who presents someone is responsible for them. Why is that? Because they've been hit so hard by DEA sting operations. So if I bring someone in to meet a drug trafficker, that drug trafficker has to know that I am so sure of this person. I know it's my neck on the line if anything goes wrong. I cannot say, oh, well, Jesus, I'm sorry. I had no idea. Hey, you know, let bygones be bygones. Sorry your brother's in the prison for the next 40 years. No, it has to be, you bring someone in, you will pay for that person if it turns out that that person is treacherous. And treachery is everywhere in the cocaine world, everywhere. I remember speaking to some drug uh, traffickers, and they were telling me these stories about how there is a certain type of criminal in Colombia who's so bold they try to make a living ripping off drug traffickers. I mean, that's just, you know, talk about- Playing with fire to the extreme, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about living on the edge, man. I mean, if this is what you're doing, I mean, hats off. But he was telling me, I can't remember the details of it, and so I didn't end up putting it in the book. But it was something about this guy who had been promising to rent a boat or something, and, you know, and by the, by the end, and the guy wasn't, it wasn't his boat or something, just, you know, it was gonna be a scam. Um, but yeah, it's just treachery is everywhere. And that's so again, they try to they try to put these rules in effect to try to lower the chaos, to try to make that world a little more understandable and predictable for them. You mentioned in uh, the podcast I heard too, that you said you saw a 14 or 15 year old walking with an AK trying to show everyone he's the boss, like commanding respect. So that, yeah, that goes back to the FARC itself. And this is a very contentious thing. So Colombia has had a real problem with child soldiers, child combatants. And the guerrillas, the, um, the illegal militias, whether they be the far-right militias, but mainly it's been on the, on the Marxist religious, uh, Marxist uh, guerrilla side. And the FARC had a long history of these underage fighters. And I told that anecdote because it was this way of trying to understand and explain why this would be tempting. Because it is, it is hard to understand. Why would a 14-year-old voluntarily put himself or herself, the FARC were actually interestingly, and the ELN, another revolutionary group there, they're interestingly one of the few in the entire world who have women as frontline fighters. As far as I know, I think it's the Tamil Tigers used to have them, and the YPG, uh, another uh, kind of guerrilla group who have frontline female fighters. I don't know of anyone else who does, but anyway, the FARC had, and that was their, um, but it, it, it was, the, the small farmer is just the bottom of Colombian society. They're just marginalized, they're abandoned, 
the central government, the politicians, if they ever turn up, and often they don't, if they ever turn up, it's just to ask for votes every four years, then they're gone. There's constant corruption. Uh, it's impossible to get ahead. But, you know, throw an AK-47 in a 14-year-old boy's hands, and now he is somebody. And I would see that, and I would see him kind of swagger around, and, you know, everybody on this planet wants to be somebody. That took me years to understand, and that's just... There's so much can be explained by that. And I know it's a kind of sounds obvious, but I think just if you can't understand something, just go back to that. People in their own mind want to be somebody. They want to stand out. And um, you would see people like he, now they have to treat him with respect. He's got a camouflage. He's in the uh, guerrilla uniform and he's got an AK-47. Um, but it's very sad. And a final thing as well. I remember seeing a survey amongst these child combatants who had been captured by the army or had voluntarily demobilized. This was years and years ago, maybe perhaps 10 years ago or something. But that survey showed that 80% of the child combatants had voluntarily gone to join the guerrillas. Colombian society liked to kind of, and this did happen, Colombian society liked to kind of focus on the involuntary, when these kids were forced to join the guerrillas. Well, yeah, because then you don't have to really wrestle with the question of why are our children voluntarily running to go, because that becomes then an indictment of Colombian society. Um, and it was something that they didn't want to wrestle with. They much preferred this idea of the child, the guerrillas turning up to the family's farm and saying, you have 20, 20 minutes and we're going to take these kids. It did happen. But it was much more common that, um, that, and this is a very contentious thing. Obviously, they were very, very harshly criticized by every different type of NGO for this behavior. And right now, it's kind of in the press in Colombia as well about this thing about are the FARC going to apologize for this? And the FARC are kind of, they're kind of going back and forth about how frequent these child soldiers were. It, the FARC are not looking good, by the way. Instead of them just saying, yes, we screwed up, we shouldn't have done this, they're kind of, well, here, well, there, you know, I mean, so. Okay, gotcha. But, um, what, what's the difference between the FARC or the guerrillas or the militias that you mentioned prior? So, like I mean, the, the FARC, bubble? Yeah, I mean, really they are, but then, but not really. I mean, so there are the biggest... Marxist revolutionary groups in Colombia are the FARC, which again stands for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Then the second biggest is the ELN, which stands for the National Liberation Army of Colombia. These are in these fight for a communist revolution. They wear uniforms. Um, they have ideology. They're funding them. They were funding themselves through taxes of the cocaine trade, according to them that they would only tax cocaine sales that happened in their territory. They wouldn't export the drug themselves. The government and many people say that's not true. They were much more deeply involved in it than that. Those are the guerrillas. Those are the rebels. When you talk about militias now, I think I really mean these new groups that have sprung up after this peace process in 2016, and they're overtly narco. I mean, they kind of have some ideology, but they really do seem to be very, very focused on uh, working uh, working to defend the cocaine infrastructure and oversee cocaine exports. The FARC, this was again another myth of Colombia. Colombian society liked to have this criticism of the FARC where they would say, oh, well, the FARC used to believe in things, but now they don't. 
And it's just not true. The FARC were extraordinarily ideological right up to the end. Uh, they really did believe in a Marxist revolution. They believed in violent revolution that was going to get rid of this oligarchy. And they would, you know, they would install something akin to Cuba. They were, but they would say, well, Colombia is our own thing. We're not seeking to replicate what Castro did or Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela. We're going to do our own thing. But Chavez and Castro were huge influences on them. But they really did believe that. And they still continue to believe this. Uh, now they're going through um, legal means, but they still want to see a fundamental reformulation of Colombia. The militias are, yeah, I mean, some of them have names like, you know, I mean, yeah, they, again, they all have a veneer of politics. And there's a reason for that, because the position of the Colombian government has always been they will not negotiate with outright criminals. But if you have a veneer of a political ideology, then the government can find a way to say, okay, we'll, we'll negotiate with you. So I think that's why you keep on seeing these militias with these kind of, with, with political sounding names, but really they're just involved in cocaine trafficking. Gotcha. And bringing it back, something I forgot to ask earlier, when we were talking about farmers growing coca, I remember uh, outside of cocaine, reading about how a lot of people chew on the coca leaves to suppress hunger, thirst, pain, fatigue. Did you see a lot of that when you were down there? No, so that's something in Colombia that's very associated with the indigenous themselves. So they're the only people who, there are certain communities in Colombia, not all of them by any stretch, uh, who, are a la who do constantly chew coca leaves. They just have a, you'll see them a big bulge in their cheek. And these communities have been possibly chewing coca leaves for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They legally can have a small field of coca leaves, and it's only for personal consumption. Um, but no, that is only with pure indigenous will do that. So when you get down to these, and the indigenous are never, as far as I can think of, maybe I'll be proved wrong, uh, the there's been no case of these indigenous, these indigenous who, uh, who do chew coca believe that coca is like this magical crop. It's, to them, it's sacred. There's rituals around it. And they think that turning it into cocaine is almost sacrilegious. So they never, they're never involved in the cocaine trade. Never. Um, there are, uh, there's another tribe who has been involved in exporting, uh, but they've had a long history of contraband. They live on the border, but they themselves don't chew coca. If an indigenous chews coca, it means they, they believe it's a spiritual thing. They will never, ever get involved in the cocaine trade because, again, they think it's sacrilegious. But it's not, and you're right, they do, they chew it. It's to give them energy. It's to kind of take away hunger. And in certain places, like you've got the Sierra Nevada or the Santa Marta, um, which is the highest coastal mountain range on the planet it's on the caribbean coast and so journeys can be three weeks there as one indigenous will visit a number of different towns and he'll have to walk over these mountains there's no roads in there um but it's not as prevalent as you see in somewhere like uh, bolivia and peru that abides by the amount of indigenous in the country Peru and Bolivia have significantly larger indigenous populations than Colombia. Colombia's pure indigenous is actually really small. I mean, it's less than 10%, significantly less than 10%. Um, the Colombia's vast majority of that population is this mestizo. 
which is obviously this kind of mix of this just total like throw all of the DNA of Europeans, uh, indigenous, uh, the Afro-Colombians, throw them in a blender and just that's what comes out, this kind of mestizo look, that they're not the pure indigenous. Okay. So with a lot of things, say like even the government, there's things we know, there's things we don't know, and there's things we don't know we don't know. What's some things in Colombia that we don't know that we don't know that you saw? Um, yeah, I didn't expect a Donald Rumsfeld question here. That seems like, um, um, what do we don't know that we don't know? I, I mean, we really, here's the thing with, I mean, well, it's actually a very interesting question because it gets to the heart of the Colombian cocaine industry is endlessly inventive, endlessly inventive. And it's, it's like, it's, the word I keep using in the book is evolution. It just keeps evolving. It keeps evolving. So as soon as the police uncover one tactic that they're using to export Columbia, uh, cocaine, they're already on the next tactic. And so we're constantly, well, not we, because again, I come into this book and I really wanted to be kind of neutral, showing men and women on both sides of that front line. But the police will tell you, they always feel like, feel like they're a couple of steps behind them. And so we don't know what, how, what the methods they're using to export, to traffic cocaine out of that country. And maybe it will be on the front page of the news tomorrow morning, that this ingenious new way that they found. I mean, just look at the ways that they've exported cocaine. They've turned cocaine into liquid, but they then have soaked clothing. So they'll take a pair of jeans, they'll soak it in this liquid of liquid cocaine, then they'll fold it up and they'll put it in the in a um, in a suitcase. We've seen some horrific ones where they were they were taking dogs and they were opening these dogs up and they were kind of putting in bags of cocaine. Uh, these there was a woman who was stopped at the airport and in her breasts she was carrying a kilo and a half that had been these plastic these plastic bags filled with liquid cocaine. There was a Canadian woman, um, I mean, could you imagine that? Can you imagine how grim that must have been in some like garage, some dude cutting her open and putting in it? I don't want to interrupt you, but that's literally insane. <laughs> it's insane. There was a Canadian woman, that, and this is the thing, you know, if you get Colombians wrong, they immediately smell, uh, they smell something. So this Canadian woman, you know, coming from kind of cold Canada where everything's very formal, Colombians are spontaneous. They're always very, um, they, have a, they have a sense of social interaction that just Europeans and North Americans just do not have. And this woman, this Canadian was going through, um, she was pregnant and she was going through the scanner and the Colombian policewoman who was operating this checkpoint in the airport, she was going on her flight. This woman was heading for a flight. Said, oh, you know, that's so great. You know, when's the baby? And the Canadian giving a Canadian thing, well, uh, you know, what? You know, in Colombia, you're like, oh, well, the baby's going to be in three months or whatever. And she's like, oh, I, I, and immediately the Colombian picks up. And so it turns out it's a fake pregnancy. She had this bulge and they had this kind of latex uh, extended belly, and in it she was carrying two kilos of cocaine. Um, and so, it, but again, it's just endless, this ingenious, and there's jokes Colombians have about this, that if they were dedicating this intelligence in this kind of, this constant evolution, this constant search for new ways of exporting cocaine, if they could use that for good, we would have cured AIDS, we would have cured cancer, we would have a colony on Mars, 
but it's a very brutal country and crime is seen as a legitimate profession i know it's um hell even in connecticut i work in like east harford or i had one of my friends over in like section eight housing it was it was like scary no matter how many times i went to just go to those shops or even see them sidetrack he moved without telling me one day and knocking on a stranger's door that was not fun <laughs> but i mean knowing that and then knowing Colombia has got to be times like a hundred, how do you stay sane or how scary was it down there? Well, I lived there. So it was my home for a long time, but I mean, I get your point. You can only go to these parts when you've, you've negotiated your access. Someone is vouching for that. And I do want to be clear about this. Like if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking about a, a trip to Colombia, do it. It's a phenomenal country. It really is just stunningly beautiful and amazing people. And you can't end up by accident in the places I went to. I mean, to get to where they're growing the coca, which is this completely lawless badlands. I mean, it just, it just you're not going to end up there. I mean, I think the idea is sometimes when I speak too much about the dark side of it, people end up thinking, well, they're going to go to Bogota, they're going to step out of the hotel, take a left instead of a right, and they're going to be in the middle of a coca field. That's not the way it goes. You have to struggle to get to these places, uh, the cocaine the cocaine hotspots. And in fact, interestingly, again, because Colombia's seen this boom in tourism over the past 10 years, you are actually occasionally seeing foreigners uh, trying to kind of, you can tell they're trying to kind of um, get their own connect in Colombia, and it, it ends badly for them. I mean, there was, uh, uh, again, back to Canada, in fact, there was a Canadian dude I went to a place called Catatumbo, which is outside, it's this region in northeastern Colombia on the border with Venezuela. You would have to fly into the city of Cucutan, and from there it's about six hours roughly. And he was found dead by the side of the road 20 minutes outside the city. I mean, he had miscalculated everything. He had and it turned out he was, uh, had a history of organized crime in, I think it was Toronto, I can't remember. He had misjudged everything. I mean, Colombia, there's no limits. Once you get into that, once you are trying to get into that world, there is no limits on the brutality. Um, so when I would go to those places, I would have to kind of contact friends of friends of friends who could put me in touch with people who knew everybody in the zone. That was how I was able to get to the cocaine, the cocaine town, La Guevara, because that town has many different militias in there. And I knew that the militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming and I needed to be very clear, I'm a journalist. I can't have any confusion over that. I can't have them worried I'm CIA, DEA. I'm a journalist. And this was also the uh, situation for um, it, when I would go to the slums of Medellin uh, to really kind of get this kind of, these were the men who were just starting out in the life of crime. And I wanted to go see them and I wanted to kind of see where they came from and to see why this world of cocaine was so attractive for them. And, you know, when I came out, I was like, all right, I get it. For these young guys, cocaine is the equivalent of Hollywood. It's going to give them this new life. It's going to give them, it's, uh, you know, they can be somebody again. Uh, and I needed to negotiate access in there. I needed to get someone to say, okay, yeah, this is the guy who will receive you. Because otherwise I'll just get robbed, at least, if I just turned up by myself to a, to a, to a slum. I mean, that's just, yeah, you, you don't wander around a slum like that. Uh, either the police catch you or the gang catch you, and really the gangs are the ones who really control everything there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of fear, 
there was a misunderstanding at some point during the researching of this book, and I did think that the cartel were going to try and kill me, and that's in the book. And they hastily convened some meeting, and I brought a knife with me because I thought if they think if they if they think I've I've um, I, I've betrayed them. I mean, that's when really terrible, terrible things happen to you. I mean, they will make an example of someone. To give you an idea, there was a trafficker who was called The Chemist, um, and he was extradited to the US. This is in the probably the eight, probably the 90s. And he ended up collaborating with the DEA in order to shorten his jail time. They murdered something like 30 members of his family. It was just this ongoing campaign. Whenever another cousin, a sister would be found, the order was to kill them. And it was just this way of, this is what happens if you betray us. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, it's in the book how I resolved that situation with the cartel. But it, it can be, you know, there's no limits in that. And I think that is the kind of thing that I was always in the back of my mind. There's, there's a limit to what can happen in the UK. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. now. There's a limit. In Colombia, I mean, if you really want to start getting deep in the underworld, there's no limit to what can happen. Understood, understood. I know our time is just about up. Can I ask one more question and then the final ender? Absolutely. Thank you. So you said Hollywood. I've never seen the show, but I feel like the audience would like to know, how accurate was Narcos? Uh, Narcos is very, very good. I mean, look, I really enjoy Narcos. I understand why some people don't. I think when it's dealing with, I'll talk about the series set in Colombia. Mexico, I don't really know as much as I enjoy the one, but I can't tell you how. I, I can't talk of the veracity of Narcos Mexico. I can talk about how, um, how true Narcos in Colombia is. It, yes, it basically is true when it's dealing with the drug traffickers. You don't need to invent anything in this world. Again, it goes back to this idea that the cocaine trade thrives on the darkest of all of the passions. It's lust, it's greed, it's jealousy, it's betrayal, it's murder. That, I mean, that is inherently dramatic. And so that is, obviously, I think they've elevated the role of the DEA agents because it's for an American audience in the end. So there is this kind of 50% on the DEA agents, 50% on the, the traffickers themselves. They're obviously, and I think everybody... Well, again, I mean, they're, they're trying to sell this to an American audience. They need to give the audience someone they can relate to. Um, but I think it's, I think it's very accurate, and I think it's, um, and for us to who really know the story, it's very interesting how they've portrayed certain characters, and they have, they they haven't gone for the easy stories. You know, I mean, there's an entire world of stories to still be told in Narcos Colombia regarding the far-right paramilitaries and the left-wing guerrillas, barely been touched upon so far. And that is sufficient material there for four seasons. Yeah, sometimes reality is just crazier than fiction. Absolutely. And remember, this is Colombia, where Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, the magical realism, um, uh, 100 Years of Solitude, this is what Colombians say that could only have been born in, Colum in Colombia because it is considered, now we are kind of venturing into cliches, but this is also what Colombians believe. Colombians themselves believe their country is crazy. They, I mean, they do, and they think that's, that's attractive. They think, and they're right by that, but they think that this kind of, these things that just happen, they'll just say, oh my God, that's so Colombian, because people there are just, 
it, it just they'll, they'll do these incredibly eccentric, surprising things, and it's just a constantly surprising country. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love living there, and I love that country. It's part of me. I don't live there anymore, but you don't live in a country for 17 years and don't take a significant chunk of your personality has been formed by that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So what's the final message or the final thing you want the audience to know before we end this podcast? Well, I mean, the book, I really, I really set out to tell these very human stories. I know it's very, again, it deals with the sex, it deals with the violence, it deals with these men and women navigating extraordinarily difficult lives in the context of a wider context of a drug war we have lost. And everyone knows we've lost it. And we keep spending billions and billions of dollars. The war on drugs is an abstract in the United States, like the war on poverty. In Colombia, it is a true war. There are missile strikes. There are attack helicopters. There's black hawks going into action in order to fight the cocaine trade. It, it, and Colombians are dying because of this. And we are in the golden age of cocaine. Yes, Colombia is producing more cocaine than ever before. And the world can look at Colombia and say, why are you producing more cocaine than ever before? But the real question should be from Colombia to the rest of the world, what are you doing to lower your consumption of cocaine? And I don't know of any major program, what, just say no? I don't know of any major successful program that is reducing consumption of cocaine because this business only exists because richer countries than Colombia pay to consume cocaine. If consumption stops tomorrow, cocaine production would, 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 would just fizzle out. Why are they going to keep producing something? But it's also the war on drugs is inherently unwinnable, and we've gone through this before. We went through this with prohibition. We know. So I just mentioned consumption. I do want to make this, I, I see this argument occasionally. It will be on the opinion page of a newspaper. Well, the consumer is to blame. Okay, but do we look back at prohibition and say that, you know, the real villain of that piece was the man or the woman who at the end of that week wanted a cocktail or wanted a glass of beer? No, we say it was the politicians who enacted these laws that were never going to be able to be enforceable. When you create a black market, you take men who are not really particularly impressive men, but they're violent, they're vicious. They're ruthless, men like Al Capone. When you create a black market, you turn these men into multi-millionaire monsters. The same is true of the drug trade. El Chapo in Mexico is not a particularly impressive man, but Otoniel, the largest drug lord in Colombia, is not a particularly impressive man. The video of him trying to read a speech, and it, it, he's not impressive by any stretch, but he's vicious, he's nasty, he's violent. And those are the men who thrive in these black markets that we are creating. And again, Colombians are dying because of this. And I want the world to rethink this approach we have to the drug war, this military um, police way of tackling this pro um, problem. And there was a Colombian president, Juan Manuel Santos. He was, Colum he was Colombia's president from uh, 2010 to 2018. And he tried to get the world 
speaking about the drug war. He wasn't some crazy radical hippie or something. No, he was trying to get the world to talk about the war on drugs. And he said, the war on drugs for us, it feels like you get on an exercise bike in a gym, you pedal, you sweat. After half an hour, you get off, you haven't moved one millimeter forward. That's what the war on drugs feels like. And he also said that this correctly, no one has bled for the war on drugs like Colombia. And I'll leave you just a final, and again, this isn't a book made up of statistics, it's actually made up of these human stories, but when Plan Columbia, this multi-billion dollar plan, was first engineered by, um, it, was, it came to fruition under Bill Clinton, it's negotiated by Bill Clinton, this is back at the turn of the century, it goes into effect in the year 2000, the, the money starts being dispersed. At the beginning, so it was like these attack helicopters, they were going to beef up the Colombian security forces. The, the stated goal was, within five years, Colombia would slash its coca production by 50%. 20 years later, Colombia is producing more coca than ever in history. And under pressure for, to show some sort of results, the Colombian government has announced its new goal for 2023 to slash coca production by five years yeah, by 50 percent. sorry it, it, we, we don't move forward in this we just keep moving in circles and at the same time god knows how many lives are lost in this war that is it's over the war on drugs the drugs won we need to rethink this do you think oregon like the way they decriminalized all drugs do you think that's like the way to go I mean, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to, to come up with a solution. And I never wanted to. You know, just as a journalist, I go there and I can just report back about what we have. I, I know I, I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens, um, what happens in Oregon. I, I think that's possibly, I mean, certainly people look to places like um, uh, Portugal, which uh, I think, I, I don't know the specifics, but I understand I think they decriminalized um drug use which i guess is what oregon has done rather than the full legalization i mean look we you know if you think about everything they told us i i, I won't guess your age but you know what we heard in the 80s what we heard in the 90s what we heard in the 2000s about what marijuana was going to do these dea officials would just go and sit there and say well it's a gateway drug if you you know start on marijuana you could be you know selling your body for heroin by the end of the week and then Colorado just goes ahead and what full legalization is it there? I mean, certainly, you can, yeah. And what's happened? You know, I mean, so these, these people who constantly argue for more drug war, that's always their solution. When you point out and you say, look, you are failing because it's an impossible task. And I accompany the Coast Guard and I think they're doing phenomenal work. And that's the final chapters of my book. I'm out with the Coast Guard in the middle of the Eastern Pacific, the biggest cocaine, um, the biggest cocaine corridor on the planet that takes Colombia's uh, what is it, West Coast and connects it to the underbelly of Central America and Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. Um, they're trying their best, the Coast Guard, but it's an unwinnable war. And whenever you kind of interview someone like the drug czar or, you know, and it's and you ask them, look, what do you, you know, you're not winning. They will always reply, well, we just need a bit more drug war. Give us a bit more money, and then we'll finally break the back. And they've been saying this since they've been 
They killed Pablo Escobar back in 1993, the end of the era of the drug law. They just keep saying the same thing. And again, it's unwinnable. And so I am going to be very interested to see. I don't think Oregon is going to spiral into chaos now that you cannot be prosecuted for having a personal, a, a, a small enough amount of cocaine for personal use. I don't think that's going to spiral the country, the state into chaos. Again, because that's not been our experience with marijuana up to this point. I think the, the chaos comes from us enforcing this, these black markets. And when we took marijuana away from the black markets, who suffered? The criminals. When, 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 yeah, when Colorado's got, you know, next to a church, a marijuana store, who suffers? The people who traffic in illegal things, criminal. And the final thing that I don't think we mention enough about, we know that teenagers will often tend to um, experiment with drugs. Why on earth are we insisting on sending our teenagers, our most vulnerable, into the arms of some of the most repellent by people in our society? People who work in the drugs industry. I mean, that to me is just so self-defeating. Why would you do that to your own children? Yeah, I'm going to artificially declare this illegal. I, you have to go to some of the most violent people in that society in order to do something that teenagers have been doing for decades now, which is experiment with drugs. And the final thing, sorry, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. No, keep going, it's thing, good. I, the final thing I would say about cocaine is, I think it's time to stop with a lot of the hypocrisy, which is that the vast majority of people who have used cocaine seem to do so with no ill effects. Now, there's a minority who absolutely do have about as bad as it goes. And these effects can be instant death, just have a heart attack. People can fall into a spiral of addiction. It happens a lot as well. But we need to stop this thing of the way it's portrayed in the, in the media as somebody has a snort of cocaine on Friday. And again, you know, two weeks, they're living on the street because they've sold everything. That's not the reality for the majority of people. There's a so many reasons for people not to get involved in any illegal drugs. But it feels a bit like the Victorian era, if you see I come from England, with these kind of not very real myths we tell. And it's kind of, it's, it's infantile to say, oh, well, every time someone is, it, we talk about someone who um, uses that drug or that drug, well, they'll always end in misery. It's kind of like the way that sex was talked about 50 years ago in a novel well, the woman had sex, oh, everything just, no, you know, her life didn't end because she had sex when she was 18, 70 years ago. That was the way it was portrayed in a movie. And I think there's something similar about the way we're portraying this um, at this point. And as long as we keep telling ourselves these lies, how are we ever going to be able to solve these problems? Wise words, I agree. Um, okay, well, thank you very much for coming out to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I loved it. I had a, had a great time. That's great to hear. And for the audience to find his book, Kilo, just go to podcasttheway.com. Or if you're uh, listening through the podcast, you'll see it in the description of the episode. But again, this is FM 91.7 WHUS stores at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. Deuces.